Double chair. It's a double chair. Who's there? It's Mark. <laughs> Welcome, my friends, and everyone interested uh, once again in faith and reason. Part two, as we conclude our conversation with Mark Howard, looking at how faith and reason work together, if it's possible for them to work together. And in this one, we're going to step into some areas that might make it difficult for reason to bring us to the precipice of making that leap into faith. So, it's about to get very real. Buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, kind of this uh, this Danish fellow you speak of. Kierkegaard, yes. <laughs> this Danish gentleman. <laughs> Um, from our conversation, I understand he, he talks about when we are at the edge of the mountain cliff mm -hmm. and we we're faced with the option of whether or not to suspend logic and reason. Mm -hmm. If we can't suspend logic and reason to take that step and we're just like perpetually stuck at mm -hmm. the cliff's edge, what does he have to say about that? So, um, he kind of goes in a slightly different direction, but in the, the paper that I wrote, the dissertation, I kind of take his concept, he calls it the sickness unto death, and I filter it into this whole discussion where this uncertainty of do I make the leap or do I run back down the mountain produces this, uh, this existential angst, this dread, this anxiety in the person. And if over time a decision is not made, that grows to the point where it's literally like living death where the uncertainty has become all-consuming you're frozen at this peak you're not able to move in one direction or the other and um, it's it's living death it's the sickness unto death and uh, it is not something you want to be in and unfortunately for the last several years that's definitely maybe i'm my, my the prophet of my own demise here but that's that's where right. i've been it it makes me think of um Proverbs 16, 25, where it says, um, a way seems right to a man, but ultimately leads to his death, right? Like mm -hmm. his own subjective experiences leading him to make his own decisions to say, well, I'm going to make decisions based on my interpretation of reality. And it brought him to this point where he's stuck at the precipice. I can't take the leap of faith, but I also can't retreat because of everything that brought me here. There's some sort of validity and I'm just kind of frozen here mm -hmm. and it man leads to death. I think James also says, <clears throat> if you ask and don't believe you're like a double minded man tossed to and fro by mm -hmm. the waves, right? Like, so I don't know how many times I've had people be like, Hey, will you pray for me? And I'm like, what do you think's going to happen when I pray for you? Do you think it's just going to magically like fix itself and get better? Like what, what's your intention with asking for prayer? Because I see in their life, the way that they demonstrate their belief in the divine or whatever, mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. So like they're asking for divine intervention when they don't believe in the divine. And it's like this double minded, like back and forth, like it doesn't actually produce anything helpful 
in your own life or your relationships, but like you, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any place for that, but it just made me just popped into my head. It's kind of like, I want to believe, but I don't. Yeah. There's, there's so much of when I take into consideration, like I was raised in a Christian household, obviously we spent some time in what I would consider a non-Christian nefarious cult setting, but Fear itself has played such a huge role in when I was a kid convinced that if I did the wrong thing, I was going to burn in hell forever, that part of my uncertainty and unwillingness to walk away from the edge and say the edge, the edge isn't even in there. This is all in my mind Mm -hmm. is still fear Um, of walking away, fear that I'm wrong. But then I mean it. Even if I'm reading scripture as a non-Christian, there's a whole lot of passages that talk about, and you're just bringing up James, um, that that we are not of those who uh, are shrink back and destroy. God is not a God of fear or of darkness. And so if if I were to accept a version of Christianity, I think it would be the one where God isn't the, the evil angry old man in the sky who's using fear. So if my one motivation for staying is fear, but the core of, if you want to call it the best version of Christianity, if there is such a thing, rejects fear, am I, am I being drawn to Christianity by the very thing that a true Christian would say is repellent? And if that's the only thing that's keeping me there, this is another argument that I've had with myself, maybe I should just walk away entirely. Um, because the the core teachings of Christianity to me, and we we could end up having a whole another hour long conversation. Um, some of them are repellent, and if fear is the only thing that's keeping me from walking away from the cliff, perhaps I'm doing myself a disservice by staying on the edge of the cliff. And this is the the flip side of this this whole thing. Is on one end you have take the leap. On the other, you have just walk away altogether. This is nonsense. There is no cliff in the first place. Um, You've just gotten yourself here by inward emotional turmoil and the Mm. result of your upbringing and years of being programmed um, with certain fears and expectations about an afterlife or about divine retribution. Um, So there definitely is a darker opposite side to this leap. Mm -hmm. Heavy stuff. Yeah, all right. I mean, let's, if you're up for it, let's explore. What are these teachings that are repellent? Um, so we got a tiny bit into this yesterday. They uh, came up and visited. As you can probably tell, this is not This John's, is my home. <laughs> this is not John's normal setting. Um, he, is, he came and visited us here in good old Missouri. And we were talking a little bit last night uh, about this concept of God as Father, right? Yeah, Which is right. something you find in Scripture a lot. Um, God either describing Himself as Father or other people attributing that idea to Him. And then, I, again, this is my understanding and my interpretation. Uh, a lot of the the actions that God takes, um, both from creation, the fall, the way He reveals or doesn't reveal Himself directly. Uh, I'd spent some time trying to understand if if I were to do these things with my children, right? I have two 
soon to be three uh, beautiful children, if I treated them the same way that, again, we talked about interpretation, yeah. that my reading of scripture describes God as father, what kind of a father would I be? And the c- conclusion that I came to was that not a very good one. So give me specific examples of, of things that this father God does that would make you a bad father. Oh, sure. We can start right at the beginning um, with the fall, right? Again, I, I know not everyone is in the um, the camp of original sin. And I don't know if you even want to describe what that is to your audience. Let's, let's define terms, Mark. What's let's original define, sin? <laughs> uh, the idea that uh, Adam and Eve's fall, that the, the choice that they made to eat the forbidden fruit is basically almost passed down genetically, that their guilt is inherited by us at birth, that we are born sick, is a term maybe you've heard before, born sick and commanded to be healed. Um, and that if we do not respond um, to the divine offering of faith or grace that is given to us, mm. that we will perish forever in eternal fire. Um, let alone if if I gave my kids that ultimatum, even if we don't take into account the method by which the supposed salvation is presented, um, at least from our context, by semi-illiterate people in the desert 2,000 years ago, even if, even if we say that's, if we just put that to the side for now, would I be a good father if I said to my kids, listen, if you do not follow this command of mine, you don't know, you, you were born into this, this is who you are, um, I'm going to separate you from me for all of eternity. But Seems when like does, that, when does that concept come into play? Because I don't think that's, there's really not a whole lot of that presented to the desert dwellers. Like that what concept. Con- what concept? Uh, eternal damnation. So you're talking about just from the Old, the old yeah, Testament specifically. Yeah, we, yeah, could, yeah. Yeah, we could get into... You know, views on eternal punishment and annihilationism and whether or not. But I'm just saying that like is... that, the idea, I think what you're, you're meshing, it sounds like you're meshing sure. some concepts that are revealed in a new Testament context, which new Testament, new covenant, a different relationship that God has with humanity Okay. into a, a context that of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, a, sure. a very different type of relationship that God had with humanity. And so because they are two different covenants, they have two different uh, agreements, requirements that surround them. So would you say that before the New Covenant, those who died under the Old Covenant uh, who were wicked mm-hmm. did not spend eternity I in- don't have an opinion because scripture doesn't say like there isn't a, a thing that's laid out that says uh follow god or go to hell sure. like i i'm i'm fine with and not that as a rule you should just throw out the old testament um, but even if you just took uh the new testament and what's revealed in the gospels and then subsequently in acts and paul's letters and others letters um that message there if we take it under just try to take it at face value for what it is. We have books written several thousand years ago undergoing, again, I, some of you that study apologetics may know all about you know, 
how certain books were chosen. Yeah, if you know text. he's wrong, leave a comment. Yeah, tell a, us how wrong Mark yeah, is. Tell us how wrong I am. <laughs> the Council of Nicaea chose and right. all, all, all this stuff. Um, regardless of if, if you want to say all the right books were chosen and all the right words were there, I compare it to if, if I, I'm, here's an analogy. I'm going to set my house on fire and my kids are inside. And I leave a series of cryptic notes throughout the house that hints at the fact that at a certain time that day, the house is on fire. They're going to be set on fire and they're going to be burned alive. Regardless of the clearness of that text, regardless of how um, blatant I am or cryptic I am, as soon as we accept the context that I'm going to set my house on fire with my children in it, everything else becomes, well, what the heck are you doing? What kind of a monster does that to, I don't want to use the word innocent because we could get into whether or not you know, people are inherently good or sure, inherently right, bad, right. but I'm going to use the word ignorant. Uh, individuals born into this world totally um, just almost, uh, we can borrow from Kierkegaard again, you have what's called, he calls existential thrownness, where you're just thrown into reality and then told to interpret it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, does that make me a good father if I then come in and save them from the burning house? Right? Well, who set the fire in the first place? Who set the, the standards for who deserves judgment and who violates my wrath as father? So... I guess I need a little bit, I need you to elaborate a little bit more mm -hmm. because I don't see God, the one setting the fire. Okay. To me, it's the kids that are setting the fire. Okay. It's, it's kind of like maybe the way I'm trying to use your picture, like where God, they get the matches. Right. So God leaves like cryptic little messages. Don't play with matches while I'm at the grocery store. Uh -huh. Right. And don't play with the oven and that kind of thing. So, I mean, sure. But, but even in that context, let's say the kids do burn down the house and the government gets involved. Who gets blamed? The negligence of the kid or the negligence of the parent? And so what I'm saying, again, I know this is a human interpretation of morality and we could even get into an argument about without Christianity, do we have a basis for morality, which is a valid argument for us to have. Um, but from that context, regardless, again, this is one story yeah, in yeah, its yeah. analogy, regardless of how you interpret it, the parent is the bad guy in that analogy. Even if the kids are ignorant idiots who love playing with matches when they're told not to, we would still all blame the parent. So then, then we come, then, then what's the, the right version of that, right? Where it's a helicopter parent that puts their thumb on their kid and doesn't sure. let them do anything of their own volition mm -hmm. because they're going to screw shit up, right? You're going to burn the house down, so I'm not even going to let you read. You know, like, at some point, analogies break down. Sure. Um, but I think I understand that what you're trying to say is the way that you see God revealed through Scripture to you appears that he's more of a douchebag than a loving father. Was that accurate? Sure. I don't know if I'd use that word, but yeah, <laughs> but we, we can go with that. That's a... <laughs> Yes. What that, that, he, that he is a less than admirable parental figure. Yeah, douchebag. I mean, what's yeah. a better word? No, you're, you're, I like it. Douchebag. Okay, okay, Let's okay. Let's go with douchebag. <clears throat> uh, just for the record, I don't 
think that God's a douchebag, but hey, we're, we're on this journey, right? We're trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Man, and that's... The thing that's that makes it so tough for me, like, I understand what you're saying, and I, I want to, like... I want to put my head where your head is at so I can, like, walk... Okay, I want to truly rightly understand, but the thing that makes it so difficult is even in that moment, it's still our own subjective like interpretation, right? So ultimately, the only way we get to anywhere beyond our own view of the earth, reality, ourselves, each other is if we are willing to take that moment and suspend. Sure. Either it's the ethics for Kierkegaard or it's my suspend reason. Suspend reason, right. Which I I think... I think where you're coming from, we have to suspend logic and reason to make that faith, is probably more universal Mm -hmm. because not everyone's faced with a moral dilemma to believe in God, right? It doesn't mean you're going to like do something illegal or immoral to believe in God. But for the most part... Man, hang on. Let me chew on this for a second. Do you mind while you're chewing if I jump in with something? Yeah, please, please. I'm going to attempt to argue against myself. Okay. Right. So um, if any of you have uh, read anything by William Lane Craig, are you familiar with him? He's an uh, apologist. I think so. He's still alive, right? Oh, yeah. He, okay, yeah, yeah. He yeah. is most known for debating atheists. Okay. Right? They'll you know, get together in front of a college or whatever and debate through these apologetic arguments. And... If, if he were sitting here and I brought up the, you know, God is immoral or, you know, reference stories in the Old Testament about go kill Amalekites, mm-hmm. you know, we would say that's a genocide and God says to go right. do it. The counter argument that he would give as I try to, you know, take my feet out from underneath my own argument is that the universe doesn't care about Amalekites is the phrase that they would use. Okay. And the idea here is by what grounds can I... Mm-hmm. putting myself in the shoes of an atheist here say what god is doing in the old or new testament is good or bad unless i first adopt the morality of the bible and and claim from that pedestal look how bad god is from right. his own tenets now there there are counter arguments to that but i wanted to make sure that at the very least i'm i'm playing fair one thing john and i talked about is i i i haven't made a choice one way or the other. I'm trying my best in this conversation to not pick a side and defend it, but rather be as honest with you and your audience and as yourself. possible and myself. Yeah. Because what I think both John and I truly want is truth. Yeah. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna straw man an argument, which is where I, you know, take the weakest part of an argument and then set that argument on fire and go, look, I've destroyed Christianity. I would rather do the opposite, where if if it's possible to bring down the edifice of religion, I would want to do the steel, it's called a steel man of that argument. Mm-hmm. You don't want a straw man. You want the best possible version of that argument. Otherwise, you're just you know, trying to win brownie points in a debate and you haven't actually arrived at right. any, and I, I think truth or meaning. I think that's why this conversation is so important because... We need to know that, like, it's reasonable to wrestle with it. Mm. And I think, man, there are so many of us that are wrestling with it and don't know how to process through it and want to know that it's okay to, like, 
think these things and walk through these things and try and find what is the truth. And we had a conversation. You were you were asking me yesterday um, if you could prove oh, what you were saying something about unfalsifiable. Mm-hmm. Yep. W- walk us through that a little bit. So I, I think you asked me, uh, is there any th- evidence or anything that could happen for you, Mark, to make that leap? What what would it take? Are, are there any, have you outlined the things in your mind that would cause you to take the leap? Mm-hmm. And aside from the answers I give, I gave, the, the point there was as soon as a person gets to the point, either on the side of Christianity or another religion or non-religion or being an atheist or an agnostic, where there are no longer a set of things in their mind that would change their opinion, their argument has become what's called unfalsifiable, where you, you've basically, um, Peter Berger calls it a sacred canopy. You set a canopy over your beliefs, right? And the, he's talking about faith, but it doesn't have to be faith. It could be agnosticism or atheism, sure. where nothing can assail your position, no matter how much evidence, no matter how you know, if it's miraculous deeds I present to you, you are uh, never going to have your mind changed. And as soon as you adopt that position, the unfalsifiable position, I would say you, you've already lost. Even if you chose right by accident, you have shut yourself off mm-hmm. from reason, which goes way back to the start of our argument where we don't want to be in a position where, our, where we are defending an unfalsifiable position. But at the same time, we're also admitting, and this is the paradox, that a suspension does take place of reason. Yeah. So the idea of suspending reason and setting your beliefs up as unfalsifiable are so close that that it produces terror in me and fear in me that if mm-hmm. I do the one, I'm actually accidentally doing the other. And I'm setting up that sacred canopy of, nope, my, my faith now informs my reason. So therefore, no matter what anyone tells me, I won't change. And I don't want to put myself in that. If it's a political viewpoint, if it's a religious viewpoint, I would hope that I would always allow myself to 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 process through and accept new evidence and be willing to change. Otherwise, yeah, that unfalsifiableness. Right, and that's like a condition. Like nobody wants to be wrong. And and we you, hate it. We were talking. You had you know this like this idea of this. Well, what if I pour myself into believing something is right, true, good mm. for? A decade, two decades, half of my life, mm-hmm. all of my life, only to get to the end to discover I was wrong. Mm. And you asked me if you could prove that what I believed was wrong, would mm. I want you to? Yeah. And I said, yeah. You did say yes. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm so convinced of this thing that I can't see and be sure of mm-hmm. that I don't think that you can prove it wrong, but... Man, I mean, to be fair, if it is wrong, I, I would want to know. And then you, you could even go into, I mean, there are people who now, um, I don't know if you know the, I guess he's a political figure and we don't want to get too political, but there's a writer, a commentator called Jordan Peterson. Have you heard of Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he is of the persuasion, and if you actually get him to explain some of this, that Christianity, the actual trueness, objective trueness of Christianity is irrelevant. What matters from a pragmatist standpoint is that it produces in us the morality that helps civilization survive, that it gives us um, personal, like everyone wants purpose and goals. A lot of people without 
purpose. This is when you slip into nihilism, which is nothing matters. Mm -hmm. Everything is meaningless. It's something Nietzsche introduced with the concept of God is dead, that there is no purpose. There is no morality. So he would say from a pragmatist standpoint, what does pragmatism mean? Sure. So you could get into a whole long discussion, but a simple, I guess, working definition would be you have a goal in mind, right? Uh, the goal is I'm going to build a spaceship. It doesn't matter whether or not the math that I use is objectively true in the sense that it is outside of the self. It's functional. As long as it works. It's functional for a specific purpose. And okay. So for Peterson, the yeah. purpose, as I understand it, um, is a civilization that has rules and laws and is at it kind of using Christianity as a glue that holds it together, gives us our morality, gives mm -hmm. us our meaning, and that it doesn't matter whether or not there was a, a snake and two people right. in a garden <laughs> 6,000 years ago. What matters is the moral lesson that is the glue that holds us together. Yeah, and I, I, have, I have friends, family, who... Mm -hmm. Uh, ascribe to themselves the title of Christian, but don't believe in God or Jesus, but right. they ascribe to that moral tradition and that code. Right. Because they yeah. think it, it, it functions for its purpose. It does its pragmatic goal. It achieves yeah. those ends. Hmm. Which you don't necessarily need faith. You do not. To embrace that type of moral, moral construct. Right. And I, I think, I mean, we could have an, a little tangent maybe you could better hit on this as uh i'll call you a pastor here okay um if someone were to ascribe to peterson and others views i mean the way i was raised in church is that those people aren't even true believers in the first place sure that right. they're almost in a sense like the pharisees worse off than the non-believer because they're 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 not accepting the validity of Christ's words. Sure, they're using it as a, a, almost a social construct for mm -hmm. control, which, yeah. in my mind, could be potentially worse. But right. What are what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I I would I would say worse for the person. Um, the individual who yeah adopts that for the individual who says. I'm a Christian in virtue only. Mm. Um, because pragmatically speaking, right, on this side of eternity, the goal of the church is to live in community and selflessness to make sure we're all taking care of each other. Mm. And so from that standpoint, I mean, I haven't really thought about it, so I'm just kind of like sure. off yeah, the yeah, cuff. Yeah. Um, I would say there is something the, when I read scripture and I see what's happening in the new Testament in the church and what I see happening in my church mm. and some things I'm like, man, it may not be bad for society, but it's certainly missing out on a whole level of, um, mm. of joy. And I would even go so far as to say pleasure in, in, the divine relationship that occurs when you take that leap and you say, um, yeah, your ways are higher than my ways. Uh, I have ideas. There's a way that seems good to me, but, uh, I, I accept that the divine Jesus way is better than my way. Mm -hmm. And cause I think that leads us to, you know, it certainly some experiences, 
Um, some that we could fabricate and make up on our own, but I've also walked in some experiences that weren't me. Like, it wasn't in my head. It was a physical manifestation, healing, immediate healing, right? Mm -hmm. Certain things that you can't... What people would call miraculous is what... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if, if you just walk in a in a moral way, you miss out on a whole other level of reality, dimensions that we don't have access to without a divine connection. So yeah, I don't know. That's just off the cuff, but that's a good question. Yeah. And just to, for again, for your deep theologians in the audience, Peterson was obviously not the one to come up with this. This is all part of the German liberal theology tradition that started with this concept of demythologizing the Bible. Can we take the moral principles of Jesus and separate them from the water to wine, Lazarus back from the dead, and mm-hmm. use them for that? So for culture, right? And so society. that that was the impetus for what I think Jordan Peterson is accepting. For a lot of people, though, I think what John is saying is correct. Is you, you you've missed the point of what mm. at, at least. From a, you want to call it a fundamentalist reading of scripture, this this isn't what it was made to do, um, and ultimately I think several generations of let's say all society accepted it as that. Eventually, someone's going to say if we've all know that this isn't true, maybe we should just throw it out altogether. Right. If it just becomes a moral code, um, then I guess uh, Nietzsche's words of God is dead would apply because it is meaningless, right? Nietzsche is not the famous phrase "God is dead." Mm-hmm. Nietzsche, yeah. Yeah. He, he's not actually saying the God of uh, Judeo-Christianity is dead. What he's saying is the philosophical need to have a God that explains the universe, that gives us morality, is no longer necessary. Um, and I think several generations of us accepting German liberal theology or Peterson's theology—again, just my opinion—would ultimately lead us to that point where people just said. If, if we all know it's false anyway, why are we continuing to believe the lie? And yet, we find ourselves at the edge of the mountain, many of us mm. wrestling with trying to decide if it is true or not. Yeah. And that's where we find ourselves. That's where you're at, and I think that's where a lot of us are probably at. And, uh, but I think one of the things that we agreed on was the way we want to end our time, our conversation together is, what would you, how would you phrase it? Wrestling. Keep, keep wrestling. Keep wrestling. Keep wrestling. Wrestling is good. Um, there's There's a wrestling for doubt. What's that? There's room for doubt. I would argue at the very least with Christianity, if, if there is a, an aspect that seems to be prevalent to me is that any religion at all that says you're not allowed to question mm-hmm. or doubt is probably not one you want to accept. Um, and I don't think Christianity, again, just from my reading, says you can't question it. There are other religions that maybe do, but Christianity doesn't seem to have an issue with your doubting Thomases. Right. right? It, it encourages that. So that, yeah, that doesn't ask mean it's right. questions. Test but, me. But yeah. you should test and ask and not abandon reason in your pursuit. Yeah. That moment, that step of faith, that's a whole nother. Right. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know that either I, of us do. No, right. But reason, 
can be used and there is room for doubt there in the journey. Yeah, and there's this story that we'll get to in Genesis at some point when a man named Jacob wrestles with God because he doesn't want to do what God's asking him to do and they physically wrestle. And then at the end of the wrestling match, God changes Jacob's name's name to to Israel, which means what he who wrestles with God. He who wrestles with God. And it's a blessing. It's a good gift. Wrestle with me. And so that we get to this point. And, 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 and God actually says that Jacob was victorious, even though he lost the wrestling match, because he kept going. He kept pursuing, kept wrestling. So keep on wrestling. Keep pursuing uh, that truth. And we'll be walking alongside with you guys. So thank you so much. Mark, man, Thanks, this, was, this was so fantastic. I'm so <laughs> glad we were able to do this. Uh, yeah, uh, hit us up, leave a comment if you want us to do more with Mark, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Love you guys. See ya. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on Dumb Christian today. I know we covered a lot of ground. Mark used some really big words. Um, but if you want to unpack this a little bit more, leave a comment. Let us know what's going on. Hit subscribe. Ring that bell. And uh, someone will, dominoes will appear on your doorstep. Uh, yeah, share this with your friends, family. Leave us a like, and we'll catch you guys in the next one. Love you guys. Oh, oh, oh.